Information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and you are listening to Episode 2 of the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Violence Risk Assessment. talking a bit today about violence and uh, violence risk assessment and predicting violence. Regardless of the year, this is always a topical matter, and society at large often turns to forensic psychiatrists to help them understand this. So um, I'm actually the chief of forensic psychiatry at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. That's Dr. Ryan Wagner. Dr. Wagner, help us understand violence risk assessment. What does that mean to you? Violence risk assessment, the term typically indicates when we look at a person's risk factors and protective factors to determine if uh, they have an increased risk of violence versus other people in the population. I typically use the term to describe these situations where we uh, look at those risk factors, determine how much of a contribution that they have, and then try to come up with some sort of way to portray a violence risk for the person. Keep in mind, though, it's not a prediction, typically. It's an assessment of how do these factors uh, in a particular person add up to low, medium, or high risk. So that that brings me to my my next question. Could you say uh, whether psychiatrists or forensic psychiatrists can predict violence with uh, pinpoint accuracy? No. I would say that, that... Pinpoint accuracy for any sort of prediction for this is currently impossible with the, uh, the, what we have available to us, the tools, the clinical judgment. This can be a problem, obviously, because people assume that a psychiatrist, particularly a forensic psychiatrist, might be able to look at a situation and say, this person is going to commit a crime next Tuesday at 8 p.m. And unless the person actually says to you, I'm going to commit a crime next Tuesday at 8 p.m., it's pretty hard to predict that. Instead, what we look at are, here are the factors that the person may have that increase their risk for violence, and do they pose a higher risk than other people do? Now, the other factor here that I think is very important is that the base rate for violence is pretty low actually. So even if we predict that or we uh, our assessment says that the person is at a higher level of violence, that person may still not be violent. Many of these risk assessments that we use, some of the factors, over-predict violence because we want to capture as many people as we can that could potentially be violent. So is that like a better than safe than sorry approach? It is. It is. It's fairly sensitive. That's the other way to 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 really refer to it as is that it's a sensitive sort of uh, set of screening tools where we try to overpredict that violence. Now, of course, most of those people won't end up being violent. If we were to say every person with a high risk for violence, we're going to take some punitive measure against, we would punish huge swaths of people who will never actually be violent. It's just that based upon their risk factors, they have an elevated risk. Uh, so trying to say prediction of violence, and this comes up often. Predicting violence is extremely difficult, if not impossible. However, uh, being able to say the person has an elevated risk for violence is very possible with the current literature and the instruments that we have. So you're using a few different terms. You know, one is uh, predicting risk 
another one is uh, risk assessment or stratification of risk or analyzing risk factors. Which of those terms do you prefer? I like risk assessment and looking at risk factors. I use the term stratification. I like stratification. It's a big $5 word, though. So risk assessment seems to uh, uh, be accepted amongst folks a little bit more. I don't like the term prediction. Prediction implies that you have some foreknowledge of something that's going to happen. And I don't think that we do predictions. So maybe for a, a general psychiatry resident or for other general mental health practitioners who may be listening, veering their documentation in the direction of risk assessment or stratifying risk factors may be better for them than using terms like uh, prediction of violence. Correct. Because remember, risk assessment is something that can actually be done by a psychiatrist or a mental health professional versus predicting things is typically in the realm of psychics and crystal balls (laughs) for the most part. And it just doesn't really fit with what we do. In what circumstances do you see uh, violence risk assessments being applied? Where where would someone do a violence risk assessment? Sure. I mean, violence risk assessments uh, take place in many aspects of both forensic and clinical practice. It can be as simple as the typical psychiatric interview where you ask the most basic question, do you have any homicidal ideation towards anyone today, which is common in many uh, evals that folks will do, to something where a, a business or an attorney or a court or someone might have a specific concern about someone and want an in-depth violence risk assessment. It runs the gamut, and it can be in different roles as well. So it sounds like you've kind of given us maybe three overlapping domains. One is the the pure clinical context, so maybe like a psychiatric emergency room or crisis center or an inpatient unit upon discharge. And then maybe a second domain would be uh, in the in the legal system, probably uh, mostly in the criminal court system. But then the third domain that you brought up, which I, I wasn't really thinking about, is the uh, the area of... Um, third parties. And so maybe a, a business that has an interest in decreasing workplace violence or maybe a school system? That's correct. Um, and, you know, it's actually becoming something I'm seeing more and more in my practice where uh, institutions themselves will want to try to get ahead of this violence risk and will ask for these assessments to then guide anything like treatments or interventions to try to prevent violence. I actually foresee that being a new uh, area that a lot of folks are going to be looking at in the near future here because of all of the things that we see in the media uh, with these mass shootings as well as other uh, other areas where violence is rearing its head. People want to be able to prevent that to a certain degree. So every time you see something on the news, uh, you'll hear the, well, how can we prevent this in the future? And so I see that happening a little bit more. People are asking for violence risk assessments before anybody is ever violent. Do you see a difference in the quick and dirty risk assessments that are done essentially every day in an emergency room or an inpatient psychiatric unit versus those that are done in the office of a forensic psychiatrist? Oh, definitely. It all depends on what you're actually what the interview and what the purpose of that evaluation is. It can be very simple to screen someone for, say, an emergency room visit, and it may not be a focus of it. If the person is there, for example, to treat some other psychiatric condition that has nothing to do with violence, you may ask about it and do a quick screen 
but that may be the extent of your evaluation versus if the specific question that is being posed to you by the business, the court or anyone is, I want you to assess this person's violence risk. You're definitely going to see a difference in the type of evaluation that's done at that point. So I've heard that you can split risk factors in a couple of different ways. I've, I've heard uh, one group called uh, static or actuarial risk factors. I've heard another group called uh, dynamic or clinical risk factors. Dr. Wagner, do you view those types of groups as valid and worth considering differently, or uh, do you have a different opinion? Well, I actually like the term static versus dynamic risk factors. Static, of course, are things that are not easily changed about a person. So, for example, a risk factor for violence is being male. This is not an easily modified risk factor. Versus a dynamic risk factor might be low socioeconomic status, which is something that can change based upon someone's employment or other factors going on in their lives. The reason that I think that it's important to split those up isn't just for semantic purposes, but they can also be targets for treatments or interventions. So if a person has a static risk factor, you might be aware of that and say, you know what, that's going to affect this person's violence risk, but it's probably chronically going to affect them. Versus a dynamic risk factor may be something that A, is worse at this time and may raise their acute risk for violence, but B, may also be a target for some sort of intervention that can actually lower their violence risk. Now, there are obviously some risk factors that are more risky, I suppose, than others. Uh, Could you just run down the list, if you wouldn't mind, of common risk factors that increase the chance of future violence? Sure. So some of the most common ones are being young, male, and having low socioeconomic status. Um, Other risk factors that are ones that you may not consider uh, is that in many studies, the actual presence of a mental illness can be a risk factor for increasing violence. Substance use is another one. Violence is more common for people with severe mental illness. However, looking closer at the data suggests that such violence is significant when the person with severe mental illness is also using substances. So while substance use alone is a risk factor for violence, it seems that the story is more complex for people living with severe mental illness. Adherence to an antipsychotic treatment regimen also seems to reduce the risk for violence in the severely mentally ill population, but there are other risk factors as well. Access to weapons, less education, as we mentioned before with low socioeconomic status, the economic instability. One that I haven't mentioned though is this past history of violence, which has been very common that folks will point to that as the number one risk factor for violence. And while that may be true in many ways, The problem that we're seeing is that many people will have that first bite of the apple in a very dangerous way. So if you never have any history of violence and your first violent act is fairly pronounced, uh, that can be a concern, obviously. I see. I see. So there are people that uh, have no history of violence that's documented and then something significant happens without without that history. That's certainly possible. Correct. Correct. I hope, like with suicide risk assessment, uh, I hope there are protective factors that decrease the chance of violence. There are. And usually, much like suicide risk assessment, they're just simply on the opposite side of many of the risk factors. So, for example, I mentioned before that uh, the presence of a mental illness can actually increase your risk for violence. 
There are certain studies, if you look at specifically a study that I like to cite on this is the Swanson ECA study. Um, they were able to find that mental illness did increase the base rate of violence in that particular study, although it was still extremely low compared to, say, the majority. So you would increase from 2% to 8 to 10%, but at the same time, the vast majority of the, those folks are not violent. However, if we were to treat that mental illness, uh, then that can decrease the risk for violence, actually. In addition, substance use is an example where the actual impact on violence is far more than mental illnesses. So again, treating substance use could be a protective factor if that person is actively involved in treatment. Other things include um, stability in relationships, stability with one's family, a good job, uh, not having economic instability. Those are all sort of factors that can help protect, but you can see how those are the opposite side of the coin of many of the risk factors. I've, I've seen a few different approaches to violence risk assessment, particularly when the stakes are high and there's time. Uh, so I've seen people use, uh, uh, we can call them actuarial instruments or psychometric tools to help uh, stratify risk. Uh, I've also seen people rely heavily on the clinical exam. And then I've seen some sort of combination where there's an exam and the use of psychometric instruments or actuarial instruments. Uh, Dr. Wagner, what are your thoughts about uh, these two approaches and and how, how do you see them working together or not at all? So clinical judgment, we often see when people are doing a regular clinical exam. As I mentioned before, if you're a practicing psychiatrist and you're not focusing on a violence risk assessment, it's just part of your screening tools, you may choose just to ask your own questions related to that. When you start to get into the realm, though, of stratifying out risk and saying this person is low, medium, or high, and that's the specific purpose of the evaluation, I do have concerns about using clinical judgment alone, as it's not clear that it's going to necessarily predict as well as some of the instruments were comparing the person to other groups, and I'll explain that in a moment. Instead, there are different ways that we can use structured instruments in order to look at violence risk, and I'll mention a couple of them. You mentioned actuarial instruments. Now, this comes from the idea that we have a large pool of data. We're going to use that data in order to uh, make not necessarily predictions, but stratify things solely based upon percentages uh, whenever an instrument comes up. For example, the violence risk appraisal guide is one particular instrument that is used where the previous studies will look at how many people were violent that had different types of traits, and then try to match that up with a particular person. Now, many of them are static risk factors. They're not dynamic. So they can give a low, medium, or high risk based upon these not really modifiable factors. And again, the, that they would use the term, you may use the term prediction, but I prefer assessment. The assessment is based upon comparing you to other groups who had similar traits. So again, it's actuarial, much like a life insurance company might use whenever they're trying to determine your risk and your rate for policy. So there are some advantages to that, that it has usually some literature to back it up. The disadvantage is that for more acute factors and for kind of strange variables that come in, it may not 
predict that as well. So if a person has something that really puts them up there in terms of violence risk, but it just so happens not to be on that instrument, it's not going to detect that because they're fairly inflexible. Instead, there are other ways to use structured instruments to help with uh, assessing for violence. One of them is to take a decision tree approach, which the classification of violence risk or the cover does. This was actually developed out of a, another study having to do with uh, the MacArthur Foundation, where they actually looked at a population and what factors were involved with violence risk over a prolonged period of time. They then used that in order to create a program where you would answer questions about violence risk, and based upon your previous answer, it could lead you down a different path with other questions. So it was an effort to sort of tailor-make the assessment a little more, while at the same time using sort of an actuarial measure. The other type of uh, instrument that can be used, which I use in my practice, are these concepts of uh, structured professional judgment instruments. These don't necessarily focus as much on a score or giving you a, uh, a score at the end of the assessment. Instead, they look at specific risk factors and remind you to ask about them in a, in a structured way and to consider them. So for example, the HCR20, which the HCR stands for Historical, Clinical, and Risk Management Factors, looks at different factors historically as well as now and has you sort of assess in that person how strong is that risk factor. Now, does it necessarily give a score that it's, aha, you scored a 12, so you have this? I wouldn't say that they're used in that way. Instead, they help you to keep in mind exactly which risk factors you should assess for that have good evidence behind them. So when we talk about clinical versus instruments, we're not just talking one versus the other. We're talking different types of instruments as well, including the actuarial, these decision tree ones, as well as the structured professional judgment. How is a clinician supposed to combine the information from multiple instruments uh, with their own exam. It can be difficult at times, especially if things don't jive together. I suppose that's why we have forensic psychiatrists. It is. It is. And, and that, that does happen at times. When you'll look at something structured and then you'll go back and go, that doesn't match with my clinical uh, evaluation at all. What I would say in that circumstance is you need to look at where where's the problem here? Where's the deficit? Is it because based upon your evaluation, the person looks really good today, but gosh, they've got a ton of risk factors that need to be addressed and they're still really present. Or is it that the instruments are over predicting violence risk, but for example, there might be some factor that they don't ask about. So I always like to use the example of a person might on a risk factor be extremely violent in the past, have a history of substance use, be somebody who has low socioeconomic status, has violent attitudes, but yet if they are paralyzed from the neck down and they're unable to actually participate in any of that violence, that's going to cause a huge, huge mismatch between your clinical judgment and the instruments. That's one of the reasons why I don't typically use the instruments alone. I like to use them together because sometimes there are just factors that the instruments will not consider and you need to bring those in. It's sort of common sense. So like reading a chest x-ray, you end up having to actually listen to the lungs and correlate the picture with the actual patient. Correct. And, and as I like to joke with my residents, 
before I like to opine on what the results of a pregnancy test mean, I like to know if the person's male or female. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Well, Dr. Wagner, I want to thank you for your time uh, that you've spent with us in explaining this uh, very complicated but very important topic. Sure. And, you know, I think if there's one takeaway from this, I think that there are multiple risk factors for violence, and you stratify your assessment to what the situation is. I teach my residents that if I have one question that I can ask, only one for violence risk assessment, I like the question, when was the last time you were violent? Only because it gives you a lot of information for just one question. I was asked recently by someone, uh, you know, after the, the shooting down in Parkland, actually, you know, what, what is it that we can do? Can't we do something to stop this and prevent it? The problem with that, of course, is everybody who scores high on a violence risk assessment, you can't suddenly throw them in jail or throw them into a hospital because some people are going to have high no matter what. They're going to have just so many risk factors in their past that they've got an elevated risk for violence. So keep in mind that even if we predict a person has a high violence risk, there's a real deficit there in what do we do with that then. My suggestion is that we try to pull together services and try to lower that person's violence risk by affecting their dynamic risk factors because trying to prevent these things by lowering a person's violence risk is probably a much more reasonable choice than trying to just lock up everybody who could potentially be violent. And that brings us to questions that exceed the scope of individual violence risk assessments. What is the role for psychiatry or forensic psychiatry in advising society at large? Should we just stay in our lane and answer questions about individuals who are brought forth to be assessed or should we enter the national conversation? Regardless of our opinions, the data upon which individual violence risk assessment rests should not be ignored as policymakers consider the greater context. Music